Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Premier Ford is seeking expert advice on whether it's safe to reopen schools for the last month of this academic year. Under Ontario's reopening plan, indoor gatherings aren't scheduled to resume until July. Should indoor learning resume before then? We'll talk about that. Montreal Canadiens beat the Leafs in overtime last night to force a Game 6 in Montreal. But it's going to be kind of special tomorrow night. We'll talk about that and explain the situation in Montreal. And Canada's new mortgage stress test rules are going to make purchasing homes a lot harder, for first-time buyers especially. We're going to talk with Nick DeSilva from Northwood Mortgage about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The school issues is something that's, uh, I think, really picked up an awful lot of speed in the last couple of days because of some of the announcements, including uh, Ontario's top doc, uh, Dr. Williams, who's in favor of this. Uh, Global's Dave Woodard has some details for us. I've been supporting opening schools for in-class attendance. Dr. David Williams made it clear he supports going back to class, and although he says one public health unit in northern Ontario is against reopening, most are in favor. All the ones around the GTHA say they have... uh, can do the case contact management and they're prepared to have their schools open. And he says even in the metric of daily case counts and ICU admissions, we're heading in the right direction. Our case numbers are coming down rapidly. Uh, We're hoping to in the next week or so to even get down even lower. However, Dr. Williams says it won't be just public health weighing in on the decision. He says he's looking forward to hearing from those the Premier reached out to in a letter, including teachers unions. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, that may well be part of the announcement today. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, there's a lot of frustration here about what I'm going to call obfuscation by the Premier here. You know, make a decision on this. I want to bring Laura Babcock into the conversation. Laura, of course, is the president of the Power Group. Uh, Laura, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. My pleasure, Bill. In the many successful years you've had with Power Group, I know you talked to an awful lot of clients about leadership and about making decisions and about having a a, a, a program that you need to, to grab onto and to embrace. Uh, I, as a taxpayer, I'm frustrated. I don't care if you're for schools opening or against schools opening. Uh, the, the Premier's got all the advice he could ever need right there in front of me. He's heard from all these people, including Dr. Williams. Uh, if you were advising him right now, I mean, should he be still waiting and, well, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do here? Uh, that, that, to me, doesn't seem like leadership. Well, leadership is not consensus. Leadership is gathering the best information that you can, hopefully taking an evidence-based approach to decision-making, considering other factors, cultural factors, etc., within your organization, getting input, respecting that input, and then making the tough call. You know, we remember Obama said once, He goes, if it ends up on my desk, it's because nobody else could solve it, meaning that there is no natural consensus. A leader has to make a decision. Lots of times I've been in boardrooms and C-suites, et cetera, Bill, over the years, many times, in fact, where we decide, okay, we should put out a survey, get some baseline data, get some input, go through all of our stakeholders, make sure that we understand the lay of the land and where people are at with this. But it never comes down to, okay, well, let's just go with what the survey results indicate. There's always the discussion and the decision-making process. And so what I think we're all frustrated by here is not just the fact that we're almost done the school year, and I could go on and on about that as a parent and the effect on the kids, uh, but we're also finally turning the corner on case counts. And so the idea of opening up with a few weeks to go and taking a risk for a lot of people seems illogical. But most importantly, we have the person in charge of making that decision. In fact, the person who's been in charge of our lives in this pandemic 
saying in a press conference last Thursday when he announced the reopening of Ontario that he couldn't get people around the table to make the same, to come to consensus. And now a week later, he's putting out an open letter. If you really wanted to know what people thought in the province, you could look at the his Twitter account with 500,000 followers. All the doctors, all the unions, all the schools, everybody's been weighing in there. I've been watching it for the last year. So the information, as you said, is abundant. What's not abundant here is leadership and courage from this premier to do his job. Well, and you've got skin in the game. You're a mom, and, and you've got two brilliant kids. But, I mean, you know, you're trying to homeschool these guys. And you're, I know you've been concerned about going back into the school environment. But I, we've talked to the people at the science table, uh, Dr. Uni, Dr. Bogosh, and so many other folks that are there. And, and, and I, you're never going to get unanimous opinion on everything. But what I find frustrating about this, Laura, is, is when there were other announcements being made about lockdowns, for instance, uh, we talked to a number of those doctors on the science panel that, that were against the lockdown. Some were in favor of it. You Yet the premier said, well, I'm going to go with Dr. Williams because this is what he said. I, you know, forget what the other 15 people said. Now, all of a sudden, he wants a 15 to nothing vote to say, yeah, you're doing the right thing, premier. I, I, I'm wondering, I'm going to connect a couple of dots here. Uh, he's getting slaughtered in the public opinion polls right now. Maybe he's afraid to make a decision now because it, it's going to reflect badly on him. Well, we've seen this pattern, but this is just, I think, the most egregious example of it. So we have seen a pattern in the last, since, as you said, the polls started to go down and there seemed to be this just increasing frustration of how can Ontario be in the longest lockdown on earth? You know, the GTA, I think, I think we are the North American capital of lockdown, if not the global one now. What is going on? How have other areas managed it better? And arguably, you could say when Ford was warned of a disaster in February and he didn't take action, that prolonged this nightmare for all of us. So there's frustration with him and the polls, no doubt about it. And what we've seen in terms of patterning Bill and his communications is we've seen these trial balloons being floated, the the backlash or the approval coming on Twitter and other from other places before an announcement's made. So it's almost like they tease an announcement, they float it out there now to see what kind of blowback there's going to be because now they seem to have a concern that some of these decisions are highly unpopular. And if you just look at the powerful voices of the doctors now in Ontario, I mean, when I, I track their Twitter, Twitter followings and how much uh, action they get on any of their communications, you know, he's right to be concerned that many, many people now are speaking up and speaking in opposition and speaking rapidly in response to any of these trial balloons. So this is not the look of a leader who has a strong clarity about his planning process, has a strong trust in the team around him, and is good at making decisions. This seems like constant political calculus, right from making one announcement, then reversing it 24 hours later, saying we're not going to open this, and then going ahead and opening it, not advising pharmacies or golf courses or day camps of what's coming. I mean, it's just, it seems so scattershot. Uh, so this is just one more example in that pattern. Well, and we saw that, and I'm glad you alluded to the announcement you made about the quote-unquote reopening. I mean, because I think a lot of us were anticipating uh, that that's, a lot of that stuff was going to be in, in, you know, start immediately. And the golf courses and the playgrounds was one thing, but a lot of this other stuff is in the middle of June. A lot of people were just shaking their heads saying, what's going on here? Can't you, can't you make a call on this? And, and I think that's part of the frustration right now. Uh, and, and I know this is always going to be a debate about whether schools should be open again, but a number of the, the medical experts are telling us that even the outbreak 
outbreaks that we've seen in schools seem to have been, since the ones that have done contact tracing on this, uh, kids brought it in from home. It, it, they, they didn't originate at the school. They, they Somebody at home, maybe working in a warehouse or something, a mom or dad, uh, brought it into the house. The kids, of course, are testing positive, and they brought it into the school. So I, I'm not so sure there's very strong evidence that the schools are part of the problem here. But what they do have is overwhelming evidence about the stress and the mental uh, pressure that's being put on families, moms, dads, and kids uh, because of this lockdown and staying at home right now. And, and that has to be addressed. And opening the schools may be part of that solution. I don't understand what part of that he doesn't get. Well, and, you know, just this morning, I just tweeted out before I spoke with you that I was listening to my son's class and his teacher said, you know, can everyone please turn on their cameras? It's a great day. I'm all alone here. I hope you feel good seeing me, but I can't see you. And I need you to understand how terrible or how rough this has been for teachers. And I want to hear how it's been for you. I mean, that's the point we're at. You know, teachers as well are having a horrendous time, you know, talking into this void with a bunch of kids that they can't track all day. I mean, it's gone on and on and on. So I think the mental health of parents, of kids, of teachers is an incredibly important factor in all of this. I also think that their mental health is going to be affected by the disruption. You know, I, I did a little poll with my kids, right? And the idea of three weeks before the end of school, having their classes change, their teachers change, because the ones who are pushed into remote learning, I have one child who's been in remote learning all year, another who keeps getting pushed back into it with lockdowns, they form their own classes with a different teacher, and then they're pushed back to a different teacher. I mean, the, what is that going to achieve for them academically? So if the issue is the social aspect for kids and giving parents a break from their kids or to get them socializing, there might be other solutions than going back into schools where the ventilation has yet to be fully improved in all schools equitably, where the teachers have yet to be vaccinated and frontline workers, where the kids are just starting their 12 and up vaccination. You know, rather than putting them into hot, poorly ventilated spaces that will lead to more spread, what about the idea of opening up day camps for the kids sooner where they can be outside. I mean, there, there has to be better thinking on this. And the frustration with Ontario is that it seems as though the premier is lurching from one, one opinion poll to the next. And seeking consensus and leadership is not a model that works in a representative democracy. Any more, Bill, than it would work if Hamilton decided to offload something like the LRT to a referendum. Do your job, take the hard decision, represent your constituency. And that's what we need from this premier. Well, exactly. And, and look, there's supposed to be smart people around him. I don't think anybody expects a premier, a prime minister, a, a mayor, anybody to have all the answers. But there are people that you can lean on uh, that can get a, give you advice. And in a situation, ultimately, as you mentioned, is up to that elected individual to make the decision here. You know, when Ford was riding high in the polls, and we're going back to the early days of, of the pandemic, it was because he was showing leadership. Uh, and, and as soon as they, he started to obfuscate and to, and to waffle on a number of issues, he went crashing down. It wasn't just the pandemic but there have been other issues like this you want to get back up on that horse show that you're in charge and that you're the one that's making the call uh and and he hasn't done that for the last little while and another example of this i'm just going to pivot if i could is is about this vaccine i don't know if he's going to talk about this today uh but we heard on the news this morning of course that there are thousands and thousands of doses of astrazeneca vaccine that are going to go bad in about another four or five days uh and the province is, is holding back well we're not sure if we're going to use this well we need to do more studying no you don't the medical experts have told you that, especially with the second dose, it's good. Put it in their arms. But these, again, this is not on Trudeau. This is on Doug Ford. Make the call and get that stuff out to the pharmacies. But he's not doing that. 
Well, I personally think it's an obscenity in a global pandemic when you have access to life-saving vaccinations to not deliver them because of logistical errors or malfeasance. I, I think it's I think it's a disqualifier, and this is not a partisan comment. If you have this ability to save lives and you can't organize yourselves out of a paper bag to get those to people, it's obscene. And people have pharmacies have been calling out and crying out about this for weeks. They've known that this could probably happen, right? They've been very afraid that they, these doses would go bad. They've got people inundating their phone lines, desperate. We should have those doses at, you know, places like Cops Coliseum where there's 24-7 lineups and people will sit be six feet apart waiting to get those in their arms by the expiration of them on Monday. There is no reason for this government to have mishandled this vaccination rollout. It was predictable. They failed. And, and frankly, if they don't figure something out in the next 24 hours, I don't know how they recover politically from this. So, yes, Bill, he better have an announcement at 1030 that mitigates some of that. But to your bigger point around leadership, you know, leadership is never about no risk. It's about best risk assessment you can make. It's about calculated risk. It's about leadership. It's about operating from a sense of values. It's about clear, consistent communication. We have other provinces that, you know, Quebec is opening up their outdoor patios tonight. You know, they'll be fully opened. You know, our case is that much better in Quebec, perhaps. We've got what's going on in B.C. Other provinces look as though they have plans and they're sticking to them. We're hearing whispers and trial balloons that maybe some of Ontario will open up sooner. So the premier has to come out and has to have some clarity and some conviction and let people know how to anticipate and how to plan for their lives. Whether schools open or not or patios open or not, Ontarians deserve to know what the schedule is so that they can start to get their lives back. Well, and, and so do the businesses themselves, because you can't just say, okay, as of June 15th, okay, turn the, you know, unlock the doors and you go. Uh, a number of events, well, including the CNE and so many other things, have had to cancel, because you can't just, you can't plan something like that in 24 hours. It takes months and months. Uh, and, and restaurateurs have the same thing. You and I both have good friends that are in the, in the entertainment and, and the restaurant and hospitality business. And, and I know how frustrated they are right now. Uh, I, I'll give you another example. I know you're a big football fan, the Tiger Cat fan, you and Rob. Uh, Ontario has has not yet given their blessing for the CFL's rollout plan for, you know, uh, isolation and everything else, but starting the season late and, and playing games in front of at least some people in the stadiums. Uh, BC has done it. Jason Kenney yesterday says he expects uh, both the Eskimos and the Stampeders to play in front of capacity crowds. Ontario, with three different CFL teams, still has not signed like that. What, what is that doing? What kind of a message is that sending to the league and to the fans and to the public here in Ontario? Well, the NFL just announced this morning that they anticipate to have full stadiums for all their games in their fall season. And if they did it now, only two, only two areas would not be fully ready to go. I mean, that's how far ahead the NFL is. So to your point about Ontario not being ready with professional sports, canceling its big summer venues, not only does that signal a lack of ambition and preparedness and clarity, but it just shows that we have mishandled this so badly. This is not a unique scenario. Ontario is not dealing with different variants than anywhere else or different issues with borders than anywhere else. We are dealing with the same global virus. That's why it's a pandemic. The fact that we're still locked down, that we don't have a clear path out, that we have a leader that's asking for open letter you know, submissions so that he can come to some sort of better consensus than the one he doesn't already have from his advisors after all these months. It's just ridiculous. So it looks like we are not at the table, like we don't know what we're doing. It's bad for business. It's bad for our reputation as a province. Uh, so on so many levels, we're, we're crying out for leadership. And, you know, let's hope once again 
today at 10.30, the Premier maybe can, can pivot and can show more clarity for all of these interests. Yeah, I feel badly for the Bulldogs here in Hamilton, the Knights in London. Uh, you know, they've had their season canceled because uh, the province couldn't seem to get on board with that. I, I find it embarrassing, frankly, to watch the Stanley Cup playoffs these days. Well, the, the, the Montreal-Toronto series, you know, playing in front of empty arenas. Uh, and then you turn on the you know the games from Las Vegas or Nashville or whatever it is. I, I'm not suggesting there should be 18,000 people in, in the Scotiabank Centre right now. I get that. But for heaven's sakes, people, put you know, use your heads in situations like this. There are some, some possibilities here that the government just doesn't seem to want to even entertain at this stage and and you're right i mean other jurisdictions are looking at ontario right now and said what's wrong with these guys and yet we've seen this government prioritize sorry keeping open some industries some sectors right construction did they ever close some of these factories that were having these huge outbreaks did they ever close so i mean it doesn't seem as though it's this sort of overall fear of opening, it seems as though certain industries got to stay open, other industries got punished or, or had to stay closed, and there wasn't a lot of rationale around it. And, and that's why this whole school thing plays into all of it, because it doesn't make sense. What are the priorities? What are the justifications? What was the indicators that we'd be able to reopen the schools? I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation about if schools should reopen in three days, Bill, and, and we all disrupt our lives again, if we had known what the metrics were to reopen them, if they were clear at the time that they were shuttered. So there has been this this patchwork of policy, this political interference into what should be a more scientific and clear approach, and the communications have been a dog's breakfast since last Mother's Day over a year ago when we started to see a double standard come out of this Ford government. Uh, so it has been a failure. And to your point, all those different industries, the reputation, it's embarrassing, it's frustrating, and if there's one deleterious thing on mental health is to prolong lockdown when the rest of the world seems to have gotten a handle on this and that comes down to leadership or lack thereof a year ago when we were in this lockdown we looked around to new zealand to the united states and to uk everywhere else and said yeah we're all in the same boat here so i guess we just have to suck it up but when you see these other jurisdictions moving out of this uh you got to ask yourself well you know where's the government's foresight and where's the vision on situations like this and it's and it, by the way i echo your comments this is not a partisan thing i, I don't care if doug Ford's a conservative, a liberal, an NDP, or I, I, I don't care. I want leadership from the guy that's in the corner office of Queen's Park, and especially in troubling times like this, and it seems to be lacking. And, and as you know, with the work you do with Power Group, uh, ultimately that filters down to the public, and they're looking at this and saying, you know, I, we're not so sure about this guy. And that doesn't mean there's not a, a viable alternative out there. We just want this guy to do a better job. He's the premier. He's going to be the premier for at least another year. Uh, you know, get off the, the, the fence here and make a decision. That's what we're looking for here. Well, in the communications bill, to your point about my expertise, he lost the narrative uh, a few months ago. It started to get rocky, as you know, not just public opinion polls, but the waffling back and forth and not closing when it was clear he should have, you know, and, and everything else, and saying schools would be open, no problem, and then, oh, they're going to be closed. I mean, there is, it was a mess, right? We've gone through a mess from a communications perspective, which is always indicative of the mess in the boardroom or in the corner office, right? Um, but where I think it's particularly brutal in this province is that his Friday announcements are being almost dreaded, almost because there's this feeling of, oh, no, what new hell will be unleashed on our, psycholo on our psychology as a province this weekend? You know, one weekend we're told the police have extra powers that the police didn't know about, and that the parks are closed, Oops, now they're open. Like, what are we going to hear this weekend? Are we going to hear a reverse on the clear one, two, three step that we heard last Friday? Are we going to hear schools won't open, but then we're going to find out on Saturday they do? So there's this 
there's actually a concern about the communications, not just the content of it, but the fact that it might just jerk us back and forth again. So, so not only has he lost the narrative, but his, his communications, I think, now are hurting more than they're helping. And when people can't trust and don't want to listen to and tune out and are sick of it and it makes them angry and frustrated, they're going to go do their own thing. They're going to make their own decisions. Have you been on the highways? Does it seem like we're in a lockdown? No, absolutely not. Laura Babcock from Power Group, as always, Laura. Thanks so much for the input. Really appreciate it today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting game at uh, the Scotiabank Center last night. Uh, if you follow some of the stuff on Facebook over the last little while, I think everybody uh, was anticipating that, yeah, the Leafs are going to crush Montreal and they're going to move on to the next round against Winnipeg. Well, funny thing happened on the way to the to the next round. Uh, they lost the game last night in overtime. Uh, pretty spirited uh, effort by uh, the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, but there's something interesting about this. Now, there will obviously is going to be another game now. They'll move back to Montreal. And when you watch the game tomorrow, you're going to notice something very, very different. People in the stands. Yeah, that's right, in, in Quebec. The first NHL crowd in Canada since the start of the pandemic will be tomorrow night in Montreal. The Quebec government, of course, is relaxing some of the COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, Nick Suzuki, who played a, a pretty good hockey game last night for the Montreal Canadiens, uh, says that they're happy that they're, they're going to be playing in front of fans. And he said, you know what, even when we were down 3-1, to one, we never did lose confidence. I thought we showed a lot of heart. Um... We feel like we can come back in this series, especially going uh, back to the Bell Center now for game six. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to play in front of our fans. And uh, we know it's not going to be a full barn, but uh, I know it will be loud. And, uh, we'll be ready to go. Fans on the stands. What a novel idea. I want to bring our good friend Greg Brady into the conversation. Greg, of course, host of the Greg Brady Show on our uh, sister station in Toronto, uh, Global News uh, AM 640. Uh, I got to, a ton of stuff I want to talk to you about, but let's mm-hmm. let's get into the game first of all. Last night, as uh, the good ship uh, Maple Leaf kind of got sidetracked a little bit, uh, I, I, Montreal played a pretty good hockey game. I, I felt awfully bad for Jack Campbell and goal. I mean, what is it? Sixty seconds into overtime, and it was a two-man breakaway against him. You got to figure, hey, where are you guys? You know, that's, what a way to end it. Yeah, not much you can do, and and I think players settle in, Bill, just like the rest of us do. I think there's that human instinct to say. With overtime, of course it could end at, at any second. Of course it could, but you're you know you're ready. You you've uh, you know you've gone and got a you know a, a new drink from the fridge and you've replenished your snacks and maybe you canceled an early morning meeting. We've seen some lot. We saw five overtime game last year between Tampa Bay and Columbus, and for it to be over basically on the second shift of the game, um, yeah, absolutely shocking and just a terrible turnover by Alex Galchenyuk, who's this is the playoffs, right? You're a hero in Game Four. He's wearing the goat horns this morning uh, against his former team, passing the puck basically um, to what would have been, you know, they hasn't played in, in Montreal for a few years, but but obviously a few a few ex teammates he ends up losing to and passing the puck to a guy in in a rookie in Cole Caulfield um, that sets up Suzuki for the winning goal. And you're right, Campbell wasn't brilliant. Um, he wasn't playing. Um, it, it was obviously not his uh, best game of the series. And uh, but there's very little you can do on an overtime goal like that. And they all count. And uh, and I was impressed that Montreal, you know, honestly had the fight and the fire. I think to myself, do these sometimes when you're down, do these guys just want want their freedom back? They've been traveling across Canada. They've been tested every day. They've been sequestered in hotels. They can't do even some of the things as locked down as we often are. They can't do some of the things we get to do on a regular basis. So I'm sure it's a bit mind numbing, but. Edmonton came to play the other night when they were down 3 yeah. nothing, and Montreal came to play last night down 3-1. So these guys want more hockey, clearly. 
Well, and, and the, what surprised me last night was Montreal really took it to them right from the beginning of the game. I mean, they did have a 2 nothing lead. I mean, the least to their credit came back uh, to tie it up and, and force the OT. But uh, uh, it, it's interesting to see how this is developing, because I know a lot of the, the quote-unquote experts have simply said, okay, well, these guys are going to roll over Montreal, and who are they going to play in the next round? Uh, but the underdog teams uh, are not giving up in this situation. I mean, nobody thought Minnesota had a chance against Las Vegas. I mean, okay, you guys want to show up, go ahead, but you're going to get clobbered. Uh, and look what they've done in that series with, the, well, Cam Tablet, local guy from Caledonia, who's, who's standing mm-hmm. on his head playing goal for those guys. Uh, the, the, the teams that aren't supposed to be doing well is simply saying, we're here, buddy, and, and you better deal with us. And Montreal's got that attitude right now. They had a little swagger last night. I think they did, yeah. The, the, the start was going to tell us everything. It's, look, it's that cliched question, um, you know, and every athlete gets asked, it, how, is it, how important is it to get off to a good start? And I've fallen in that trap sometimes, and I end up, you know, beating myself up for a bad question because nobody ever says, well, it's not that important. But it was more important than, than the average NHL playoff game last night for Montreal. They plant the seed of doubt in the Leafs' minds. The Leafs are coming to the rink thinking, we could do this tonight. Not only could all of us players do something that well, most of us haven't done. Joe Thornton's won plenty of playoff series. Jason Spess has played in the Stanley Cup final. But most of the young core Leafs, it's been disappointment after disappointment. And I don't need to tell you, Bill, like this is a this is a wounded fan base. This is a this is a uh, an absolutely abused fan base. And you can be 20 and you've had heartbreak and you can obviously be 60 and you've had tons of heartbreak. So um, until it actually happens, people just just don't believe what they see in front of them, that the Maple Leafs are a better team, that they're a goal. They got back in the game last night. They're a goal away from advancing to the next round. But also it's been ages since they've been favorites like this to win a playoff round. Um, They constantly even Doug Gilmore in 93 has got to score that goal. At Detroit, the Red Wings are building this eventual Stanley Cup dynasty, and they've got to they've got to go win the game in Detroit in Game Seven. Um, they've got to beat Gretzky and the Kings, although they had home advantage. That was still a team built for the current and built for the Stanley Cup playoffs. And and look at look at losing to Boston. Um, Boston's been a perennial contender now for a decade, and they've lost three playoff series and three Game Sevens to them, and they've all been in Boston. So yeah. this was an opportunity last night to sort of put the foot on the throat and get it over with. And Montreal stood up and said, you're not going to just yet. I don't want to get too deeply into the sports cliches. We've both been inundated with those <laughs> over the years. But one of them, I think, that really holds true, and we saw this again last night, in a series like this, it's tough to win that fourth game, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of pressure. You think, oh, come on, they're up 3-1. There's no pressure here. There is, because of what you just said. There's history here, too. And I'm not suggesting that in the back of their head they thought, hey, we're going to blow this. But it's it's hard to get over that hump sometimes. Yeah, it's it's weird thing with the NHL because the NBA and to some extent Major League Baseball teams up 3-0 or 3-1 just have a much better record. Um, we've seen the Raptors down three nothing. You know they play those LeBron James Cleveland Cavaliers teams, and yeah. you're, you're like, ah, oh, they know they're not going to win four games. They're not. They know they're not winning four games. They know in their heart of hearts. They're, and I know fans don't want to believe that that athletes look and say, well, I can't do this, but. Hey, listen, we all do it. We go out on the golf course and and we play with somebody new and, and instantly we're analyzing. Am I as good as that guy? Am I better? Or is he just much better? We do that with tennis. We can do that with, with rec league hockey or rec league softball. So the NHL players know. Montreal knows that Toronto happens to be the better team. That said, they also know they've got a world-class goalie. They also know they're paid to play. They also know there's incredible scrutiny and pressure. And look what they gave their fans. You mentioned that off the top. And it's a good angle to, to move towards. 
that they gave their fans, uh, at least some of them, a chance to, and, and so it won't be for the people just in the stands tomorrow night at, at Bell Center. It'll be for the people watching on TV. They were able to give something back to the community. The first attended hockey game in Canada in, what are we doing, 17 months? 17 months. And Montreal gets to host it. And those players made that happen. And so the curiosity factor, Leaf fans are dreading this. Like they are dreading tomorrow night seeing if the crowd can actually make a difference for the first time in in a year and a half in a huge game. They do not want to play game seven at home and their building will be empty. There's no Doug Ford's going to talk on uh, on on this station in 20 minutes. He's not announcing Leaf fans in the building in game seven. Trust me, he's not. Not going to happen. Uh, and I understand, you know, you look at the record over the season, and of course the Leafs had a much better record than Montreal, uh, so they should be favored. But, uh, you know, the favors don't always win. I asked Sidney Crosby about that. He's playing golf today uh, instead of getting ready for a hockey mm-hmm. game. I, I want to pivot it to something else here because uh, you, you've been covering sports for a long, long time. Uh, and, and you're one of those guys, and I've done it from, from time to time too, that's been those these post-game press conferences uh, after the big matches. And, you know, we're all there in a room, and, and the, the star, whoever it is, in front of the microphone. Uh, probably one of the hottest athletes in the world these days, of course, is Naomi Osaka, who's the tennis star who's going to be playing in the French Open. She announced yesterday, as you know, she's not going to talk to the media during this tournament, not before the games, not after the games. She's just not going to talk to them. Uh, and she says, I'm going to get fined for it, but I don't care. It's it's BS. I'm tired of it. It's, it's mentally taxing for me and for every other athlete. And she says, I'm the only one that's got the backbone to actually stand up and say what every other athlete's feeling is this is a stupid thing to do, and I'm not doing it anymore what are your thoughts on that i'm not a fan not a fan of it and i'm a massive naomi osaka fan i remember i was cheering for her to beat serena uh, at the australian open um cheering for her to, to win that grand slam against serena remember how much controversy there was with that yeah uh, serena's getting coached from the stand she breaks she has a breakdown on court loses her temper uh and we've all done that in athletics but serena took it to an extreme and then remembers and Naomi's about to get the trophy and and there's booing in that crowd. Like that's we saw Bianca beat Serena on that court a year later. That is that's a that is as much of a home advantage as you can get in the sport of tennis. So look, Osaka is 23 years old. I, I'm not making this up. I was just thinking about this the other day because they noted that she's one of the top ten earning athletes on the planet. And I thought yeah. that's fantastic. She gets fifty million dollars a year in endorsements. But I think this is sort of I think this is new age gobbledygook i'm not questioning this is a little like megan markle i will not question you telling me if you are having a mental health crisis i will not question if you're saying i'm having a rough time right now i think that's unconscionable but we can ask specifics as as you know piers morgan famously lost his job it was more about walking off the set when he was challenged but he said what are some of the specifics i like when he says i don't buy megan markle's story he's not saying well i don't buy that she's she's feeling a mental illness issue coming on it's what do you mean you couldn't leave the palace? What do you mean you couldn't you you can't get a cycle? You could get plastic surgery at the at Buckingham Palace and nobody would know about it. You can't you can't get on a phone with somebody and talk this out. So I look at Osaka and I think Bill, the previous generation of women's tennis players, watch the Billie Jean King movie, the one with Steve Carell and uh, and and Emma Stone. Billie Jean King tirelessly had to push women's tennis and say mm-hmm. we can do some of the things the men can do. At times, I will tell you as a lifelong tennis fan. The women's tour has been better promoted, better marketed, and has had better matches and rivalries sometimes than the men's tour has. So I, I just look and I think, you know, Monica Seles was stabbed, could have lost her life on court. She was never quite the same player after that. And she didn't do this. 
Serena and Venus Williams know they came into a sport that was mostly white, mostly upper crust, and they're black girls from Saginaw, Michigan, moving to Compton in L.A. And 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 as much as that, you know, they courted controversy, and some of it was self self created. They never did this, and I I just have to think the older generation looks at Osaka and says, "There's a little too much privilege here." You need, and the WTA said it today. They put out a statement and said. No, I'm sorry. Like, like we'll offer anything you need, but you, you got a job to do. And the job is sometimes talking and helping the other girls on tour and helping promote our sport. It, it, I, I just can't believe Osaka's taken this tact. And I think it's more about protect, insulating her from criticism about bad results. Also, Bill, I'll say this to, to double down. She doesn't want to talk about Tokyo. She does not want to talk about the Tokyo Olympics. And I get it. That's a no-win mm-hmm. situation for her. Should, should, it, should it happen? Should they cancel? Should they not? But you can avoid that question. Yeah, like everybody would understand. She could say, listen, I can't make everybody happy when I talk about Tokyo, so I'm not going to. So let's move on. That's all you have to do. It happens, and and that will, and I, I understand because sometimes these these conferences, you know, can be the pressers can be a little tedious, and they're full of cliches. You know, my arm feels good. I can help mm-hmm. this ball club. You know, and uh, you know, we one one step at a time, one game at a time. We want to get pucks deep. I mean, we know all those cliches, and and yeah, they do come up time and time again, uh, and it can be a little tedious, I guess, for the athlete. As, as she said, you know, I get asked the same question by twenty five hundred different people, uh, and it's the same answer, and it's boring for me. But it's your job, and and even the people. People that don't like doing it. And the guy that came to mind when I was talking about this yesterday uh, was John Tortorella, the, the NHL coach, uh, who's terrible with the media. He can't stand yeah. the media. And if he gets a question he doesn't like, he just says, I'm not answering that. What's next? Uh, and that's it, because he knows he has to do this, but he's not going to play you know, a sucker for these guys. She's got to just take a different attitude. If you want to promote this, if you're concerned like a lot of women tennis players are, and I know you've talked about this on your show, uh, you know, the, the purses aren't as big as the men's game. Well, that's because of promotion. That's because of ratings. If you want that to get better, then you've got to play a part in this. And, and Osaka has to understand that, that she does have a responsibility here to promote her sport. Yeah, I think all that. Now, listen, I, I, I do think social media is changing the game a little bit, and athletes can control the message more, and I'm all for that. I'm absolutely all for them being able to have their say, but there still are going to be prerequisites. There still are. And I would, I just, yeah, again, if you're making $50 million in endorsements a year, and you're making and you're making 20 and you've made 20 million dollars and people love you the media has built her up and rightly show how many women's tennis players have been on uh, on Ellen's show maybe 3 maybe 3 ever and she was one of them so the media has been great for her they've not been terribly critical of her but they but listen guys get asked the question hey Peyton Manning when are you going to win the Super Bowl Alex Ovechkin when are you going to win the Stanley Cup um we're asking this of our of the Maple Leafs right now when are you guys yep. going to win a round it's been forever and you don't see it now. Now and then, we had a controversy last spring when Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun revealed that Austin Matthews had tested positive for COVID nineteen. I see both sides of the issue. Simmons has a job to do. It's a story, no doubt about it. And Austin Matthews wasn't happy about it. We were debating the Suns' uh, pitcher on the cover last week of John Tavares. I didn't like yeah. it. I didn't like it one bit. I thought it was too graphic. But those are the debates that that at least you can have here. When when you just hold your hand up and say, "I'm not talking to anybody." And, and you can just find me. Well, you're not promoting your sport. Teachers can't not talk to parents like we're all we're all going through something. We're all going through something. And the WTA says we're here to help. And uh, and it shouldn't make a damn bit of difference whether you whether you answer five or six questions in a monotone, bored fashion or whether you you engage the media. But you got to show up. You just got to sit in that chair and do it. You have to. Yep. Uh, we'll see how they respond to that uh, as the tournament unfolds. Greg, always a pleasure. Thanks for this, bud. Have a great weekend. We'll talk later. Loved it, Bill. Thank you.
Greg Brady, of course, host of the Greg Brady Show on uh, the Global News Station in uh, Toronto, AM 640. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, mortgages. Uh, we've talked about the housing market, and the story, of course, that we saw uh, that we reported on earlier this week is uh, the Hamilton housing market uh, is now, uh, we're told, uh, the third least affordable market in North America. I mean, the, the, how, the prices here are just off the map. London, of course, is going nuts. Toronto is, well, you can't even talk about Toronto anymore, the way the market's going. Uh, but I know an awful lot of younger people now that are looking at this and saying, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to get a house. Uh, affordability is going to be a real problem here. And the other aspect of this is there have been some changes in the last little while uh, to do with stress test rules for mortgages. And uh, it's one thing to say, okay, I can't get the down payment, but even if you can scrape the money together, are you going to qualify for a mortgage? So to try to get some clarity to this, I want to spend a few minutes talking about this today with uh, Nick De Silva. Uh, Nick is, of course, vice president and mortgage broker with uh, Northwood Mortgages, of course, and uh, always a guest, a welcome guest on the program. Nick, thanks for making some time for us today. Really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on your show. Let's, uh, I want to get into a whole thing about affordability and about markets and about mortgages uh, because it's a, a, probably one of the most misunderstood things uh, that, that people are doing, and it's obviously going to be the largest purchase anybody's going to make uh, to buy real estate and to buy a house these days. Uh, let's start off, though, with the, the latest news about this, about these new wrinkles that uh, the government is announcing that are going to take place in just a few days, I guess. Well, Bill, as you've indicated, the real estate market in southwestern Ontario has gone crazy. It's red hot. And, you know, the government is doing a knee-jerk reaction to try and deal with the complaints of this high-priced uh, market. And so back in 2018, they introduced a stress test, which is a qualifying rate. It's not the contract rate. And, you know, to appease, I guess, those in the public who are calling for something to be done, they've decided to bump up the stress test from 479 to 5.25%. When we look at the math on this, I mean, it makes a difference between 4 to 4.5% uh, less on what the average consumer can borrow. When it looks at the overall purchasing power, their purchasing power has dropped by maybe 3 to 3.5%. It's not going to stop this red-hot market. I mean, those who are relying on borrowing to actually buy a house and they're going to the full extent of their capabilities, they're the ones who are going to lose out on you know the bidding wars. But those who don't rely on that kind of stuff, are going to have the advantage in this kind of scenario. So why is the government getting involved in this? I mean, every time they do this, Nick, it seems to cause more problems. That I, I assume that their rationalization is that we want to try to fix the situation. They don't seem to be fixing it. They seem to be making it worse. The government's got to do something. I mean, it's all out in the press. Everyone's talking about it. You know, this runaway uh, steam train or freight train, whatever you want to call it, of a real estate market. And it's not just the GTA, as you've indicated. Right across the Hamilton Quarter, down to St. Catharines, down well in, into Fort Erie, across to London, and you know probably across to Windsor and up into Ottawa, the real estate market has gone crazy. You go up into cottage country, and again, prices are off the charts. So how do you slow it down? And you know the the, the reaction for the government is very little. It doesn't really do anything to slow the market down. It does not address the major problems, which is lack of supply. Right? It does not curb the appetite of the demand for real estate at this point in time. So it makes them look like they're doing something, but really what they're doing is really nothing. I mean, all they're trying to do is say to the, you know, the public, hey, we, we tried this and you know, let's see where things go from there. Keep in mind, too, that the real estate market is driving a large chunk of our economy right now. I mean, the last stat I saw from Stats Canada says that uh, the real estate market or the real estate industry, it makes up about 10% of Canada's GDP. 
that is crazy. That is off the charts, uh, way too much. However, you know, what is the alternative? I mean, the government doesn't have many other industries that they can turn to to pick up the speed. I got to ask you, you're a numbers guy and you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, we're what, 17 months now into this pandemic and, and, you know, if God is good to us, it's, it's going to end sooner than later, we hope. But are you surprised at how the real estate market has taken off? I mean, everything else is, has, has really suffered as a result of this. And some industries, of course, have, have been able to do all right. But I don't think anybody, Nick, anticipated that this was going to happen with real estate. No, I mean, historically, when things are bad, which means we're going into recession and there's a slowdown, interest rates drop, and the real estate market benefits from it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, thinking in a pandemic um, environment, which none of us have ever been around, um, it's hard to, you know, predict from last March or April that this would have happened. But when you start taking a look at what's come out of the pandemic, people being able to work from home, which means they can work from anywhere, um, you know, 90% of the population working from home, not being able to spend money, can't travel, you know, you know, can't go to restaurants, can't go to, you know, um, entertainment uh, shows and stuff like that. So they've got an adequate supply of cash being built up right now. Um, and then we're seeing the transfer of wealth between parents and grandparents to the kids. Topple that with record, record low interest rates, and you've got the perfect uh, recipe for a booming real estate market. Yeah, because uh, we've we've talked obviously about the Hamilton market, and we know the GTA has been nuts for years. We know that. Yep. Uh, but I've, I've talked to I've got friends in the real estate business and some family up in the uh, Collingwood Blue Mountain area, uh, and they said, "Look, it since this thing started uh, in March of last year, uh, they can't build houses fast enough up there." I mean, a lot of people from the Hamilton GTA area are simply saying, "Look, it this is as good a time as any. We're relocating because, like you say, if I'm going to work from home, I'd rather work from home up there than work from home here where I can't afford the house." Uh, and it's insane what's going on, and, and that's that's a good two and a half hours away from the GTA, uh, but people are comfortable with that now, I guess because of the technology. Well, yeah, you know, the technology, I mean, even if they have to come in one day a week, I mean, right now yeah. the highways are pretty much empty. I mean, I come down, you know, one of the major highways into the city from about Newmarket, and I have no traffic. I mean, you know, pre-pandemic, I mean, I'd be stopped about halfway down and have to crawl in to, the, <laughs> to my office, and today I drive straight in, no traffic, nothing to stop me from coming in. Um, and yeah, you know, the technology, people being able to work from home, uh, Zoom has worked quite nicely, DocuSign and, you know, um, some of the other technologies allow people to sign stuff from a computer. Yeah, I mean, our world is changing in a, in a rapid way at this point in time. And if you can afford it, real estate is a very good investment at this point. Is this bubble going to burst? I know that I'm asking for a prediction, and who knows for sure. I know, but, but as I say, you've been in the business a long time. What's your sense? I don't think so. Um, I cannot see interest rates going up um, rapidly in the next couple of years. And then, Bill, you talk to the real estate experts out there, and you know they open up their Bible and they talk about how much immigration is going to come to the GTA area in the next yeah. year. You know, it's you know depending who you listen to, it's seventy to eighty thousand, all the way up to one hundred fifty thousand people, and the foreign students coming back in. Well, we don't have the real estate to accommodate all these people coming in. So unless we do something to change supply or unless we do something about the immigration, um, this is going to continue. right? And it's going to be difficult for the younger generation to buy in unless they've got parents to help them.
Yeah, we've had uh, Tim Hudak, uh, of course, who's the, the the president and CEO of the Realtors Association here in Ontario. He's been on the show a number of times. And he's hitting the same thing that you've talked about twice now in the last couple of minutes here, Nick, is the concern here is supply. And, and I know that when there isn't enough how, housing, or the, the supply is short, that's driving prices up, also, uh, quite aside from the, the fact that we all want to buy stuff now. Uh, if you can't find one, that's how you get these bidding wars, and we've heard these things. I mean, people, people are getting houses sold before they even get the sign put on the front lawn these days. I mean, that's how quickly it's going. Supply is a real problem here in Ontario, isn't it? It is. Um, too much red tape for you know the developers to go through to build these new homes. Um, so with lack of supply, it's not. It's just again simple uh, demand and supply theory. You don't have it, it is going to drive up the prices. And one of the other things to build is that one of the places we looked for supply to come from is the older generation, them selling their homes yeah. um, and moving into retirement homes. Well. Um, who's going to move into a retirement home during this pandemic or after this pandemic? I mean, I think it scared a whole ton of people off from that kind of thinking. So that level of uh, supply is not going to hit the market. Yeah, we've seen that happen. That's kind of an anomaly, isn't it? I mean, there used to be yeah. a, like a circle of life, I guess, in real estate. You're right. You'd get a starter home. Your family would get a little bigger. You'd get a bigger house. Uh, you'd maybe stay there for a while. The kids go off. You become an empty nester. Uh, maybe you, you sell the place and move into something smaller, as you say, an apartment or maybe a retirement home. Uh, that Those retired people, they're, they're hanging out of their houses these days. They are. And, you know, they are looking at ways to raise money from their existing homes, so whether they use a reverse mortgage or they can qualify for normal mortgage, they're taking the funds and paying for their their living expenses. You know, whether they have to bring people in to help them out or if they're still able to live there, yeah, um, they're holding on to their properties. And that was a, an avenue of supply that I think every government was hoping that would continue. And I think you're going to see a major slowdown in that area. There's another element to this, too, and again, when I'm talking to young families that are trying to get started and trying to get the money together for that first house, uh, it's, it's kind of difficult, I guess, right now because the things are so crazy in the business these days. Uh, uh, banks can be a little bit difficult to deal with because of some of the regulations that the, uh, the feds have put in. Uh, and the folks are looking to places like Northwood Mortgage and saying, look, can you guys help me? I, we never would have thought to look at it five or ten years ago, but you, you guys are a viable option right now for people that are looking for alternatives and a way to actually get the money together. Yeah, I mean, there's some winners that's, that's coming out of this stress test issue. you got credit unions in Ontario who do not have to follow the stress test rules for uninsured mortgages. So there's one avenue right there. And then we have some alternative lenders that uh, we have access to where, again, they have some play on the income qualification aspect of qualifying for a mortgage. So you've got some play there that will allow you to still qualify and offset the you know the increase in the stress test. And that continues to drive the market. I mean, even even the major lenders out there, the big banks, I mean, they have room to make exceptions. And if if the numbers are right, they are making exceptions on the income qualifying aspect of things, right? So again, they're not losing out. I mean, if you start looking at um, the bank's results, um, you know, a couple of them already have posted their results. And, you know, their numbers are doubled from where they were last year. And a big part of that is going to be the real estate industry. And, and as you've been saying for years now, I mean, the, the, the number one piece of advice here, I guess, for people that are doing that, uh, if you're getting frustrated, shop around. Uh, you know, look for options. Look for, uh, you know, call people like at Northwood and, and, and look around and see what's available right now because uh, these institutions can be flexible. They may not sound like it during that first phone call, uh, but, but you know, there are going to be options and there's going to be opportunities for people. Don't, you know, if, if you get turned down, for instance, or it looks a little onerous, uh, there's always going to be a, a plan B for you somewhere. Correct. I mean, if you use a professional a mortgage broker to help you arrange a mortgage, 
you'll have a lot better luck than if you just go into a branch. We know how to play the banks. We know how to negotiate with them. And like you said, they are flexible. Uh, it's a very competitive market out there right now, and they want to get their money up, right? And it's what's driving their profitability right now. So, And this has also helped to drive the real estate market. Well, it's a matter of having expertise, right? I mean, you know, we've talked to people in the real estate business and, uh, you know, the realtors themselves, and they'll simply say, yeah, you can buy a house without our help, uh, but you don't know all the I's to dot and the T's to cross and a lot of the other things, so it's always good to get professional help. Uh, mortgages are in the same situation right now, aren't they, Nick? I mean, it, it can be a very confusing business, a very competitive business right now, and if you've got a broker, uh, it makes things an awful lot easier. They can do the heavy lifting for you. That's correct. I mean, there are a lot of players out there who are offering really good mortgage rates, um, good financing options. And if you're trying to do it by yourself, quite a, quite a number of those lenders are not available to the public. They you have to go through brokers to sort of get to them. And if you're not using a broker, you are cutting out more than half of the available players in the market to get, uh, again, good interest rates. And these players make the big banks you know, stay honest to what the good rates should look like. They keep them honest. They are competitive with them. And this is where the public can really benefit from using a mortgage broker. Well, and, and as you say, that's the key takeaway from this, is you know people that we don't know in, in the public. Uh, and I've heard that so many times, people saying, hey, you know, my, my buddy here just got a new mortgage. I didn't know that company even existed. They got a much better rate than I did. Uh, you, that's where you guys come in. You, you know who these people are, and you know how to access them. Correct. And like I said, they, are, they, they make the banks competitive because they offer rates just as competitive as the banks. So it keeps the banks from, you know, bumping up rates and, you know, making it more expensive for the average public to afford a property. Again, we have access to these different lenders. They all have different levels of risk tolerance, and they can accommodate pretty much most requests that are available out there in the market right now. We've got about a minute left here. Uh I get a mix of reviews, and as you say, the new rules come into place in just a couple of places. Is there going to be a rush over the next four or five days? I mean, if you're looking at putting an offer in on a place right now, is there going to be a rush to try to get everything closed up by the 31st? Right now, the if you have your application into your lender, your mortgage broker who's probably sent it off to lender, your grandfather passed the June 1st deadline. Okay, okay. Any applications that are coming in after June 1st. And we did see a big rush. Um, I mean, the news of this stress test has been out for a number of months right now. So we did see a big March, big April. Uh, I'm not saying that's the main driver, but it obviously had some effect on it. But when you go past June 1st, like I said, the, 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 the increased stress test is only affecting the borrowing power by about 3%. So when you think of all the bidding wars that you've been hearing about, 3% is not going to make a big difference in a bidding war. Right? Exactly. It may take it may take the one person who is relying on the max mortgage they can get to get into a bidding war, but you know, out of ten people, that's probably going to be one or two. So it means the other eight are going to have a big advantage over those people. You want to get some more information about this view in the car right now? Just uh, when you get home, uh, Google Northwood Mortgage, and uh, uh, they'll get in touch with you. And they can give all the details to you. Nick, always great to get some clarity on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay, Nick DeSilver, of course, who is the vice president and mortgage broker with uh, Northwood Mortgage. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.